bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Hey folks, uh, it's been a while since I've done a Round Canada podcast, so uh, this podcast was interrupted by the start of a hunting season. Uh, so I was out for a couple of weeks. If you kind of want to know what uh, what happened uh, in the elk archery season, that's kind of was the the main thing that Curtis and I were up to. Uh, we have a elk season uh, debrief episode on the Hunters Underground podcast um, for our patrons. Uh, if you want to join that, you go to patreoncom slash podcast. Join. Uh, become a patron of the underground and get that podcast and get some updates on how our early season uh, elk archery hunt went. So I'm going to catch you up on a whole bunch of stories from around Canada. Kind of some of them go back into the summer a little bit. So anyways, I'm going to start with a fairly uh, recent story and, and work a little bit backwards. So up in the Northwest Territories, there is the Bathurst caribou herd. They are protected uh, from hunting, and they are protected by what's called a mobile zone. So as the herd moves across <clears throat> northern Canada, it's actually got like a no hunting zone around the, the herd, like a certain uh, distance from where the herd is. And it prohibits anyone from hunting these caribou inside that mobile zone. It's kind of a unique thing. We're used to uh, probably seeing no hunting areas that are fixed. This is actually as a zone that is moving with the caribou. The Bathurst caribou herd uh, has been dramatically declining over the the past several decades. Um, So it's declined about half from from half a million caribou to around 6200 uh over three decades that's um that's pretty massive decline from millions to uh, less than ten thousand. so environment canada wildlife officers received a couple of complaints early in september about um caribou in the mobile zone being shot partially processed or just caribou shot and left or the shot and quartered and then the meat just left laying um, <clears throat> out in the out in the uh, um, on the tundra so they found about 10 caribou carcasses the wildlife officers did and um, they identified like like I said a lot of wasted edible meat um, they then the wildlife, federal wildlife officers, and this is kind of where this story gets a little controversial, executed a search warrant on a hunting camp of the Lutzel K. Dene First Nations. Um, so they have a camp that's set up about 150 kilometers away from this mobile zone of where the caribou herd was. Uh, apparently harvesters from the First Nations camp were using planes to access areas near the mobile hunting zone. Um, and so what happened here was the federal wildlife officers executed this search warrant on the camp and they went in and did a, uh, a search of uh, the tents and 
uh, places and stuff that the people were staying in while they were out there. And the spokesman, the, the story I read, a spokesman for the First Nation said that that was just a very, very um, troubling and unwarranted um, way to approach the First Nations. Um, just armed officers coming in and uh, executing a search warrant, um, basically said they would arrest anybody that um, got in their way sort of thing as <clears throat> um, interfering with an officer. So officers were probably looking for um, evidence of harvested caribou. Uh, I would suspect that if the First Nation hunters were suspected of these illegal um, caribou or wasted caribou in the mobile zone, officers were probably looking to get um, samples of any animal that was there and then do DNA matches. That's probably something that would take place in an investigation. However, nothing has been said about that in in the news. Um, just that this uh, search of the camp took place. It was connected to the investigation of these um, killed illegally killed caribou and and the meat that was left out there. And that's all the information that's out there right now. Other than the fact that the First Nations are very upset about the way um, the investigation was conducted. Um, it's sort of very um, forceful and uh, they're calling for an investigation into who ordered uh, the search of of their of their hunting camp so um, parts of the concerns where there were elders and you know and and youth and stuff in this hunting camp and they were just exposed to seeing a lot of um, traumatic things with officers uh, searching uh, their homes and stuff so uh, an unfortunate story on uh, all counts, uh, both on the endangered caribou herd and um, the search of the First Nations camp. So uh, hopefully maybe in the coming months we'll learn a little bit more about that story. Kind of staying in Canada's north in Arviat in Nunavut, um, there is a young hunters program for Inuits age 8 to 18, um, each time they take youth into this hunting program, it's about 10 weeks, they take about 8 to 10 kids um, and they partner them up with elders. Uh, the youth learn all types of traditional um, hunting knowledge, um, beliefs, values, um, and uh, they do tool making and they do all types of, um, you know, uh, hunting practice, putting practice, uh, you know, into um, uh, like the, the, the classroom stuff into practice with uh, camp sessions and out on the land and hunting and stuff with these kids. Uh, the youth in this um, youth hunters program are also learning how to use various types of technology um, so that when Inuit hunters are out, they're actually collecting data on everything from seabeds, water quality, um, grabbing samples off of dead animals that are found on the land, um, and working collaboratively with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and other research uh, institutions in kind of monitoring the land and wildlife and stuff while they're out hunting. Uh, students also learn um, gun safety, boat safety, uh, land safety, Arctic survival skills and all kinds of stuff. 
So anyways, the, the last group of these youth students harvested and participated in their first ever and harvested a couple of whales this summer. So that the, um, the hunters from the camp um, prepped the kids and trained the kids and they actually did a real whale hunt and um, harvested a couple of whales for the community, um, you know, in their traditional ways. So that is pretty wild. Um, can you imagine being, you know, eight to, to 18 or whatever and, and taking a hunter education program? I think I took mine when I was about nine or 10 and then getting to participate in a whale hunt. Wow. So I've covered some stories on previous episodes about um, the avian flu and dead birds um, that are showing up in various places uh, in Canada, prairie provinces, uh, especially in the springtime, uh, bird carcasses were being found when snow was melting and, and whatnot. So dead and dying seabirds uh, late this summer were, were washing up on the coast of Newfoundland and uh, in one of the uh, ecological reserves and public beach areas uh, in Newfoundland. Um, apparently the carcasses were mostly MERS, um, so the, uh, the sea duck, the seabirds, uh, that hunters in the Atlantic provinces like to hunt, uh, as well as gannets. And so mostly MERS and about one gannet for every 20 MERS. Um, the avian flu was first detected in uh, birds in Quebec, uh, but they've scientists have also found that the avian flu is affecting seals. Now, Quebec scientists say that they found traces, traces of the avian flu, uh, uh, H5N1 virus, in some dead harbor seals that are washing up uh, in the St. Lawrence estuary. About, dozen, about a dozen seals have tested positive. Uh, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency is currently validating uh, these results, uh, or at least they were late in the summer. They figure that the seals are contracting the H5N1 virus because they're using rock formations to bask in. The ducks are also um, uh, basking on uh, particularly eiders uh, and, and common eiders and other ducks, and they're apparently picking up uh, the virus, and it's sort of going, it's an avian flu, but it's being transferred from uh, birds to mammals, uh, in this case marine mammals, uh, which is which is a little concerning. Uh Later this, uh, later in the summertime, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's, this is sort of tied in here, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service uh, issued a ban on the importations of raw wild waterfowl meat from Canada into the U.S. Uh, to slow the spread of the flu virus for hunters returning to the United States from having come up to Canada to hunt waterfowl. That uh, ban was kind of met with a bunch of opposition from the hunting community and organizations in the U.S. kind of saying it didn't actually make sense um, in the ability of uh, these dead birds uh, that have been plucked and processed, wing left on to transmit H1N1 virus. Anyways, uh, the ban was taken off and hunters were allowed to come up to Canada 
And depending on the zones, whether they're hunting in known avian flu zones or not, uh, apparently the hunters are allowed to take um, migratory game birds back to the U.S. Kind of sticking on the bird theme. I've covered stories before about, um, uh, about cormorants. Uh, and the concern that started in Ontario of cormorant populations getting so high that they were devastating uh, game fish populations. And they brought in um, a hunting season on the cormorants in Ontario earlier this year. Uh, in Newfoundland, the Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture Department said that uh, beginning in June of uh, the summer, they would be accepting applications for permits to allow people to shoot cormorants in specific areas um, such as important fish habitat, water supplies, and ag aquaculture operations. So this has been met uh, by some opposition. So a Memorial University uh, biologist uh, and, and some others had done in freedom of information request and got some uh, government records and we're, we're kind of looking through the decision on this cormorant call in Newfoundland and uh, this biologist at the Memorial University um, said uh, his name is profession, Professor Ian Jones. Um, he's just told uh, CBC in, a, in an article, he said the government's justifications uh, after looking through the documents just doesn't quote unquote hold water. Uh, what um, Professor Jones said is what it basically looks like is a solution looking for a problem. And from a scientific perspective, there isn't a problem, um, said Professor Jones. There isn't really any scientific evidence that cormorants have negative, negatively affected fish populations in Newfoundland and Labrador. The minister in Newfoundland, um, in an email to an official in his department, said, my understanding was that the ordinary persons could apply for a permit to shoot these nuisance birds. So <clears throat> some of the documents obtained by CBC uh, is, is kind of showing this, uh, I guess, maybe ethos at the highest levels in the Newfoundland government. Uh, that cormorants are just considered nuisance birds. People are complaining about them. So they're, um, I guess, wanting to appease people uh, and giving out permits just to shoot these birds because they're calling them nuisance birds. Um, but the scientist from the university said that there's real no science, scientific evidence that uh, cormorants are affecting fish populations in Newfoundland. Staying in Newfoundland, um, there was some concerns uh, again this year that there was last year of high water temperatures and declining uh, levels in several central Newfoundland uh, rivers. And it was prompting the Federal Fisheries Department to uh, impose restrictions on salmon fishing in the region uh, this summer. That'd be the second year, uh, late summer, where uh, salmon fishing was um, cut back or um, closed because of high water temperatures and, and critically low levels in Newfoundland rivers. Um, kind of staying on, <clears throat> on the same, thing, uh, same theme of, you know, DFO regulating um, uh, sports fishermen, there was a, a grassroots root 
grassroots group <laughs> in Smithers, British Columbia. Smithers is kind of in the central north area of uh, British Columbia. Um, this group got together kind of to express their frustrations over the federal and provincial government's uh, salmon and steelhead management plans in northern British Columbia, which they say are short-sighted and ineffective. A spokesperson for this grassroots group in Smithers, B.C. said recreational fishermen harvest less than 1% of the entire sockeye run, whereas the commercial fishermen are allotted, allocated 40% of it. Uh, the group is apparently fed up with the government's reliance on closing opportunities for recreational anglers as their primary form of conservation. I think I've heard that lots from coast to coast in this country of <clears throat> uh, sports fishermen just being frustrated by um, stricter regulations, shorter seasons, closing of um, salmon and steelhead fisheries while commercial fishing operations kind of continue to go um, unabated or not, not closed altogether. Uh, a while ago on the Round Canada podcast, I was kind of giving you uh, updates and, and covering a story on the Fraser River about a big landslide called the Big Bar, big bar Rock Slide, which was north of Lillooet on uh, the Fraser River. Uh, in the spring of 2019, a big section of the canyon collapsed, dumping 85,000 cubic meters of rock into the Fraser River, essentially creating a dam. Uh, on the Fraser River that was causing the water to accelerate its speed as it was plummeting over this dam and it became a barrier to salmon trying to get upstream to spawn and they, the government spent a couple of years trying to get equipment and crews down to a work site at the bottom of this canyon um, to build um, they tried some blasting, they were building some uh, fish ladders, they had some um, fish cannons that were, they were catching fish and, and um, sort of propelling them on the upper side of the, of the big bar landslide. So this year, uh, preliminary data late in the summertime suggested that more of the fish are finally reaching their spawning grounds in the upper Fraser. Um, Upwards of 39, I think this was in August, upwards of 39,000 salmon a day were making it past the Big Bar area. Uh, and over 80% of those fish uh, were sockeye, which were uh, one of the runs, one of the salmon species that, are, uh, that have a conservation concern on them. So kind of a, um, a good news story for salmon on the Fraser River system. Uh, that that dam in 2019, that that rock slide was was a pretty pretty big blow to uh, salmon stocks that were already uh, struggling. So it sounds like this year that uh, Mother Nature and some of the work that federal government was doing in in trying to create some fish pa fish passages around the Big Bar rock slide um, has been successful. So I always tend to cover, um, you know, some stories around the country where uh, wild animals uh, have attacked um, people. 
uh, or pets uh, seems to be stuff happening a lot. Of course, last year there was all of the, uh, the incidents of coyotes in Stanley Park in Vancouver. So over the, the summer, um, there's been kind of a number of different things that happened in um, the lower mainland in British Columbia. Um, there was a couple of coyotes attacks on dogs, uh, including a pack of coyotes that actually attacked a German shepherd. Um, pretty big, pretty big dog. In August, uh, a young boy near Rocky Mountain House, Alberta, was attacked by a cougar. Uh, that was quite a severe attack. Uh, a bobcat attacked a dog uh, this summer in Ashcroft, BC, and the man was trying to save his dog and got his hands and lower arms bitten up by the bobcat. And in Salmon Arm, British Columbia, a bear uh, took a swipe and bit a man that, again, was trying to save uh, his dog that was being attacked by the bear. So these stories tend to get picked up by the mainstream uh, media. Uh, they are kind of, you know, sensationalized. Uh, I think somebody, you know, people are always interested uh, in this. You know, they're looking for, is it on the rise? You know, what's what's going on? I think people that spend a lot of time in the outdoors are always concerned about these types of things. And one of the reasons I like to cover them is, uh, is again, one of the things I'm trying to do on the Round Canada podcast is cover these stories coast to coast so that we can kind of find themes and threads throughout time and space in the country of these different types of of stories relating to wildlife conservation and hunting and fishing so the reason i kind of gave a highlight on these four attacks over the latter part of the summer was interestingly enough other than the cougar attack on the boy in alberta um, all of these wild animal attacks involved dogs so that's kind of an interesting thread there um I've read stories in the past that I think I've covered them a lot of times. They involve off-leash dogs. Um, and so there's always folks in the conservation officer services are asking people to keep your dogs uh, on a leash when you're out and about on these hiking trails and stuff. So uh, anyways, that's kind of what I know of <laughs> for animal attacks in Canada since the last time I did an episode. In July in the summertime, um, some indigenous people from both Canada and the U.S. Um, came together in the Wanaskawekin Heritage Park in Saskatoon um, to sign a buffalo treaty. So there were signatories to an international buffalo treaty back in 2014. Um, where several members of different First Nations in North America um, signed this treaty at the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. And there was some more signed on to that treaty uh, this year in, in Saskatoon. So the goal of that treaty uh, is First Nations coming together, <clears throat> sort of consenting to the idea of establishing free flow of bison across the international border and restoring the spiritual and cultural connections between bison and indigenous people. 
Um, I think it's more like a like a statement intent type treaty. Uh, I didn't see anything that was specifically tied to um, bison introductions uh, or th those sorts of things. I think it's just um, a strong um, statement and willingness um, that's being made on behalf of a coalition of First Nations in both countries for the rewilding of bison. Um, because so many Plains uh, First Nations in, in North America uh, cultures revolved around the bison. So kind of an interesting thing. Uh, hopefully we'll see some more stories about uh, rewilding of bison in North America in the years to come. So gun control. Kind of always like to kind of keep you up to date on what's going on at the federal gun control because Obviously, hunting and recreational sport shooting is tied to the ability to purchase and own guns in this country. <clears throat> so federal government is getting set to um, start buying back these, what they've classified as these assault weapons. Um, so that's kind of gathering speed um, to start happening. Uh, apparently, it's the RCMP that will be... Um, confiscating or receiving firearms that are now banned uh, when gun owners relinquish them. But I read this story recently, which is kind of interesting, <clears throat> that there was, in 2018, there was an engagement paper done. And the federal government um, put out a request that over 130,000 Canadians, uh, gun owners and non-gun owners, actually responded to. So this is quite interesting. Uh, I don't know why this is sort of like surfacing now after the legislation's put in, put in place. But uh, this survey that was done in 2018, 81% uh, of the respondents rejected the idea of more restrictions on handguns compared to only 18% that were in favor of more restrictions. 77% opposed further restrictions on quote-unquote assault-style weapons, and 21% were in favor of more restriction on these quote-unquote assault-style weapons. So that was kind of interesting. Um, some of the um, opponents of the federal government's uh, banning and buyback program of these um, assault weapon type type guns, um, you know, are basically saying that the media is biasing the perception that there's a lot of Canadians that uh, um, want these things banned and taken off the streets, uh, when in fact the government's own data from a 2018 survey showed that most were not in favor of additional restrictions on <clears throat> both handguns and those um, assault weapons. The federal government is estimating it will cost four to six hundred million dollars to buy back um, these quote-unquote assault weapons. That was an estimate that was done in 2019. Other sources are quoting the cost upwards of around a billion dollars. Uh, opponents to the buyback program are saying that this money would be better spent on efforts to secure the Canada-U.S. border against handgun smuggling. Another story that I read that kind of ties into um, the recent bans on handgun ownership and sales in the, in the country and these assault weapons is uh, an article that I read that was kind of talking about crime rates uh, in Canada as sort of being the 
the uh, the driving motivation behind um, banning handgun sales and and ownership and transfer and these assault weapons and stuff is sort of all tied to like how bad uh, violent crimes are in Canada with weapons. So this article I read uh, said that the top Canadian city, um, if you were to put it on the list of the world's most murderous cities, was Thunder Bay, Ontario, with 6.35 murders per 100,000, including all types of firearms. Uh, the author of this article said that sounds like a lot, but Thunder Bay's murder rate, which is Canada's highest, would make the Northern Ontario city the 59th worst city for violent crimes committed with a, with a firearm in the United States. So it would, it would rank 59th in the United States if Thunder Bay were in the United States for murders committed with firearms. Um, the article and I was reading to it said uh, the homicide rates in Canada's 10 largest cities wouldn't even get on to the top 100 cities in the United States for homicides created with a firearm. So basic gist was is Canada does not have a violent crime rate committed by firearms um, that is out of control and so severe as is always being portrayed by the federal government and uh, the media. They're basically saying it's n we're not even close in this country to the United States. So, And that's why they're sort of comparing it to um, by murder rates and by city size. So interesting. There was also an article uh, came out in the newspapers in British Columbia of wildlife advocates. Uh, this was particularly coming from a wildlife rescue center in Haida Gwaii, um, advocating hunters to reconsider the use of lead ammunition. Um, this wildlife rehab center on Haida Gwaii was receiving um, a fair number of eagles that they were um, trying to save, most of them died, and they're saying that these eagles are picking up tiny lead fragments from carcasses and gut piles left by hunters shooting deer on Haida Gwaii, and they're asking hunters to make the switch to non-lead ammunition. Uh, one of the spokespeople for the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center said that they normally see a pickup, um, like an increase in the number of eagles that are coming in with lead poisoning around November all the way through into February, um, which is happening during or shortly after hunting season in British Columbia. So on this topic, a researcher at the University of Saskatchewan working in cooperation with Environment Canada is conducting a lead contamination and scavenger study in Saskatchewan. And the researchers are asking hunters in Saskatchewan if they want to be part of the program, uh, which would be probably 
if I recall, like donating um, parts of your deer and the gut piles and stuff so they can try to see what's in it for uh, lead contamination. I believe there was also a component of uh, hunters putting up trail cameras on carcasses and gut piles and stuff so the researchers could see what's coming. Uh, what type of scavengers are coming to these gut piles and stuff and not all scavengers are equally um, vulnerable to lead poisoning. Uh, the birds of prey are highly vulnerable. Uh, some mammals and uh, whatnot are not. So if you are in Saskatchewan and you are interested in helping out with this lead study, I'm not sure if they still need help. They were giving away a $200 Cabela's card to hunters that were willing to help out. So if you want to help, you can contact uh, Lindsay Bent. Uh, so L-Y-N-S-E dot Bent at U-S-A-S-K dot C-A, University of Saskatchewan dot C-A. Lindsay Bent at the University of Saskatchewan. Another young wildlife researcher at Acadia University in Nova Scotia named Willow Bent is doing research on a brain worm, a parasite that gets into white-tailed deer, into their spinal system and brain, but it is not lethal to deer. What she's studying is the number of deer that are carrying the brain worm because when the brain worm is transferred from deer to moose, the brain worm is fatal to moose. So what's happening here in the life cycle of this virus is deer are picking up the virus or the the um, the parasite. It's a worm. Uh, eggs from feeding vegetation, water um, coming in contact um, with things on the ground. They're ingesting it. Then the parasite is leaving in the feces. The snails in the forest are then foraging on the deer's feces and the moose, when they're foraging, are coming in contact with the snails and then picking up the parasite off of the snails. The moose aren't eating the snails, they're coming in contact with snails while they're um, browsing and grazing. So, so far, as uh, the late part of the summer, um, wildlife researcher Willow Bennett has looked at 85 deer brains uh, in Nova Scotia and has found that 40% of them are carrying this lethal brain worm, lethal to the moose. Scary shit. Uh, caribou. Always stories about endangered caribou in Canada, unfortunately. I've talked about this in the past of the endangered caribou in Quebec. According to the most recent stats, 5,252 woodland or, care or mountain caribou are left in Quebec. There's only seven caribou left in the Val d'Or herd. Uh, and in the, the Charlevoix and Gaspé herds are basically on the verge of extinction. So this is another classic scenario that has happened in British Columbia where these species get listed uh, under the Federal Protection of the Species at Risk Act. The provincial governments are then legally bound to do something to protect endangered caribou. 
they generally don't do anything or do anything meaningful. And then the federal government starts threatening to implement a section of the Federal Species at Risk Act, which would allow the federal government to take control of the habitat that the endangered species live in and dedicate it completely to the protection of the endangered species, meaning all industry like logging and whatnot would get kicked out. So the federal government and the Quebec government were butting heads over the endangered caribou herds in in Quebec for, for a while, going back and forth. And the federal government was saying the Quebec government was not doing enough to protect the species. The federal government um, was saying that it was going to come in and oppose measures under the Species at Risk Act, uh, which the federal government has never done. They always threaten the provinces, but they've never actually done it to protect an endangered species when the provinces are failing to do it. So it's kind of a... Uh, kind of a boy who cried wolf kind of thing, I guess. However, that does tend to freak the, the provincial governments out. The federal government was potentially looking at taking over 35,000 square kilometers or about two and a half percent of Quebec's entire land base to protect these caribou herds. Um, so Quebec all of a sudden said, oh, well, we're going to do something about endangered caribou now. We're going to invest $12 million into short-term measures to protect the caribou and another six million um, was thrown in by the federal government. So they apparently kissed and made up. Exactly the same thing happened in British Columbia with the endangered uh, mountain caribou herds. Federal government, provincial government kissed and made up. Um, no sanctions were put in by the federal government and logging wasn't disrupted, all that kind of stuff. They all threw a whole bunch of money and really it's not making a tremendous amount of difference. Uh, the province of Quebec is planning to release a caribou conservation st uh, strategy next summer. So sounds like we're seeing the same thing happening in Quebec as we've seen with endangered caribou in British Columbia and in Alberta. Speaking of endangered caribou in Jasper National Park, their endangered caribou herds, I covered this story a little while ago about the approval the Parks Canada put in place to start a maternal penning operation for the beleaguered Jasper caribou herd. Um, so Parks Canada is going ahead with that. They plan to capture females and a small number of bulls, uh, put them into captivity and get them to breed. Uh, if this plan gets fully approved, uh, I guess it's approved like conditionally, then uh, Parks Canada would also begin construction of the enclosure, which would be near Athabasca Falls, uh, which is about 30 kilometers from the town of Jasper. And that uh, construction of that enclosure would begin this winter. Um, and I guess putting caribou into it would happen this winter. Because uh, Parks Canada is saying the first calves um, would be born in the spring of 2025. Uh, so yeah, I know that would mean that the caribou would be going in next year. And then um, those calves would be released into the beleaguered Tonquin herd um, the following year. So still a couple couple years out. Looks like they're hoping to build the maternal pens this winter, capture caribou next year, 
cows would be born in the spring of 2025 and then released in the following year in 2026. So still a ways away. Uh, hope it works. They have had success with maternal pens turning around the declining rate of endangered caribou in northeastern British Columbia with the West Moberly and Soto First Nations who are operating an indigenous-led maternal penning operation uh, are, are producing some great uh, results, very positive results that shows that maternal penning operations could be a part of the solution for endangered caribou herds in Canada. All right, switching over to fish. I don't know where you live in Canada, but uh, do you have bass? So apparently bass in most places in Canada, I know they're not here in British Columbia, are not native. They've been moved north out of the United States and put into lakes uh, and streams across southern Canada um, where they have suitable habitat. It was the big thing to do back in the 50s and 60s, the old, um, what do they call it, uh, hook and bullet game management days where it was about just putting stuff out there for sportsmen to catch and shoot. Um, now, the trending philosophy is, is uh, bass and some of these other species are not native, they're invasive. Um, science is showing they're starting to have impacts in native ecosystems, so governments all over Canada are trying to control um, these invasive species, species like bass and perch. So in Nob uh, Dobson Lake in Nova Scotia, um, smallmouth bass got into that lake. Um, there's been some studies done on it and they started to find that it looks like the smallmouth bass were out competing the native brook trout. Uh, it was apparently a bit of an issue in several water bodies in Nova Scotia. So after trying a whole bunch of different things of, you know, catching fish and netting fish and all this kind of stuff that just wasn't working, on the 10th of September, uh, the government undertook a program where they poisoned the lake with a chemical called rhodanone. They had taken out all of the brook trout, native brook trout, prior to this and putting in, put them into a holding uh, lake or pond somewhere else, and then they killed all the bass in the lake with the chemical rhodanone. So then they do a bunch of surveys and stuff on the lake to make sure that they're not picking up um, bass that could then just breed and carry on. Once they're confident that the lake has been killed, they'll move the brook trout back in and allow the brook trout um, to continue to, uh, to live as a, as a native trout. Um, one of the things that happens in these ecosystems, it's not just a competition with fish, but it's uh, all other types of stuff that the invasive fish uh, tend to hammer. Uh, amphibians, um, different types of uh, insects and zooplankton and stuff that, that the native fish populations um, depend on all tend to decline with the presence of these invasive uh, fish species, especially invasive bass. So this is not the first time that Nova Scotia has used rhodanone. Um, 2020, there was a treatment done on Piper Lake. Uh, same thing, 
now that they've done that, studying it for a couple of years, they've seen some increases in amphibians, native fish returning. Um, and so that's kind of a positive thing. It sounds like a really um, kind of a really harsh thing to be doing in this day and age when we see all of the impacts of chemicals and stuff on the environment and, you know, spraying forests with glyphosate and uh, the forever chemicals that are showing up in unborn babies, umbilical cord blood and, you know, all these sorts of things. And the days of DDT and the impacts to like peregrine falcon, so on and so on to be using um, chemicals. So rhodonone, as I come to understand, it is a extract, a synthesized extract from a chemical that's in a plant. Um, if I'm correct, if I'm not, let me know. Uh, and it's apparently doesn't have lingering effects on other aquatic organisms, uh, targets fish, kills fish. And then um, once it sort of goes inert or goes away in the water, uh, then when you put fish back in, that's, they're fine. It doesn't, it doesn't um, carry on with a, a lingering effect, killing other things in the lake. So it does seem like kind of a harsh thing to do, like I said, to be using broadly using chemicals in the environment in this day and age. Uh, but I guess it's this real balance between trying to protect biodiversity and native species from invasive species, whether they're plants, insects, invertebrates, or fish, or mammals, or birds. If they're invasive, they tend to have pretty big implications to biodiversity. This is everywhere in the world. And uh, it's taken some fairly aggressive treatments like the use of poisoning lakes. What are your thoughts? Should we just allow the bass and invasive fish to live in these lakes and people catch and eat them? Or should we do everything possible to protect native fish and get rid of these invasive species? Let me know what your thoughts are. Lobsters. Um, a California-based company called Seafood Watch. Um, they, their goal is to monitor the harvesting of fish and crustaceans around the world uh, and, and sort of provide the, you know, the uh, uh, sustainable sort of food, seafood endorsement of various catches from the ocean and stuff around uh, the world for consumers to uh, look to seafood watch to see what's on their list and what's not to make um, choices based on uh, impacts that the commercial fisheries are having on on the ocean trying to catch the various types of fish for for market so anyways they recently said that lobster and crab fishing industries in the north atlantic um, so in canada is a menace to the endangered North Atlantic right whale because the animals are getting entangled in the lobster and crab fishers uh, ropes uh, that are on their fishing gear, on their traps, uh, pots. The North Atlantic right whale numbers are less than 340. Um, entanglement in fishermen's nets and ropes 
uh, are two of the biggest threats that they face along with the collision of ocean ships. 86% of the North Atlantic right whales off of the east coast of Canada show some type of scar from either entanglement in fishing gear or from being hit by ships. Some of these whales are showing that they've been entangled in fishermen's nets and ropes more than once in their lifetime. There is a big news story floating around out there right now of a very, very famous um, female North Atlantic right whale um, that was the subject of a documentary. They were following her and her life's journey and having a calf and raising it. Um, they named her Snow Cone. And the last that she was seen uh, a few weeks ago, she's been ensnared in fishermen's nets and ropes for almost a year. She's covered in sea lice. Uh, she can't dive for the sea lice to get off. Her body conditioning is getting worse and they figure that she's going to die sort of any week now. This is kind of coming right on the heels of this uh, seafood watch group labeling uh, lobsters and crab fishing in uh, Atlantic Canada as kind of being a, a menace or unsustainable fishing practice uh, because of the impact on the North Atlantic right whales. The fishing industry uh, and governments in Newfoundland and Labrador are pushing back against this um, rating and accusation of the Canadian lobster and crab fishing industries. This is also happening down um, like in Maine and stuff as well, saying that uh, there's not a lot of um, solid proof that it's actually the crab and lobsters fishing gear that's actually getting ensnared in the uh, the um, that's, that's capturing the whales. Uh, the fishing industry says we have extensive precautionary programs that if the fishermen see a whale, they shut down all their fishing activities, pull up all their gear and park it until the whales leave. Um, the Lobster Council of Canada said that this red listing of, of lobster and, and, and crabs uh, as being a threat to the North Atlantic right whale um, really doesn't reflect what the Canadian lobster and crab industry is doing to prevent uh, whale entanglements. The federal government or the Newfoundland governments kind of came out um, in opposition to it as well. Um, the Newfoundland and Labrador government said in a news release that the seafood industry remains an integral component of the provincial economy employing over 17,000 people. And for more than 400 communities last year, the total value of the province's fishing sector was 1.6 billion with the most significant portion of that coming from snow crabs. Lobster and snow crabs are a multi-billion dollar industry in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so the reluctance to have anything out there in the global consumer market that is going to threaten people from not purchasing lobsters or crabs caught off the west coast or the east coast of North America is a huge concern to the Newfoundland and Labrador government. The Lobster Council of Canada uh, is saying that this um, seafood watch group is saying that the whales are still dying so you have to do something 
And the Lobster Council says, well, it's only so much that fishermen can do. What are your thoughts? This is a very common theme and a thread uh, through a lot of these stories in Canada is an industry, whether it's logging in the caribou story or here in the case of um, uh, endangered North Atlantic right whales and a lobster and crab industry, it's always this conflict between jobs and the revenue to the province or territory versus the cost, the economic impact of saving an endangered species. Those two things are always pitted against each other. That always seems to be the fight. Um, what are your thoughts? Should species that are on the brink of extinction, if it's going to upset a $1.6 billion industry, crab industry, is it worth shutting down or further restricting or increasing the cost of fishermen to save less than 340 Atlantic, North Atlantic whales that are left on the planet? This is always the dichotomy uh, that seems to be put out there. Maybe technology can step in. There is some technology that's being tested where crab pots and lobster pots are being dropped. They are not roped and buoyed. There's no nets, no ropes, no nothing. And the har harvesters come back. They locate those crab pots via, I think, GPS coordinates through satellites and then lower down, hook onto them and bring them up. I'm not sure if the crab pots themselves have transponders on them or, or whatever, um, but they're called ropeless technology. So maybe that's the future here to save both the industry and the North Atlantic right whale. All right, folks, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada. We'll see you in the next episode. bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast.